turn to Mark chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 28 through 34. This is a very familiar passage. And it's, it's, it's very rich to, to ponder it and to be reminded of what really matters in life. So let me, let me read Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. God's word says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is God's holy word. It is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this word that you inspired to be written down for our good. We pray that this word would be on our heart and that by the Holy Spirit, this word would transform and renew and strengthen our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you go back to the the previous passage in uh, verses 18 through 27, Jesus is having a conversation, a disputation, you could say, with the Sadducees over the doctrine of the resurrection. And at some point, one of the scribes, uh, one of the teachers of the law, one of the theologians in first century Judaism, comes on up and hears this interaction between Jesus and the Sadducees, and this particular scribe is impressed by what Jesus says to the Sadducees, and that prompts him to ask a question of his own. Now, as we've been reading through chapter 11 in particular, we know that in general, these scribes were opposed to Jesus. The the, the scribes were, were conspirators with the chief priests and the elders to destroy Jesus. But this particular scribe seems a bit different, a bit more earnest, a bit more sympathetic to the Lord Jesus. And so he comes with a question 
at the end of verse 28, which commandment is the most important of all? There are many commandments. In fact, by one count, it's difficult to know exactly how to count the commandments that appear in Scripture. You get repetition and variation and so forth. But by one count, there are 613 commandments just in the Torah. That is the first five books of the Bible. And, of course, there are many additional commandments in the remainder of the Old Testament. And this scribe wants to know which one, which commandment is the most important one of all. And Jesus begins to answer the scribe in verses 29 and 30. In in verse 29, Jesus lays the foundation of the most important commandment. And then in verse 30, actually states what the most important commandment is. He's basically quoting here from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. The foundation of the most important commandment is, is, is the fact that the Lord God has redeemed Israel. Moses, in in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is God's spokesman. He is addressing the people of Israel. He's calling them to attention. Hear, O Israel, and that reminds us that we are talking about God's covenant people. These are the people that God has redeemed. These are the people that God is going to be bringing into the promised land. God's covenant people today are those who belong to His Son. God's gracious covenant is for you if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you can put yourself within that grouping of covenant people when Moses says and Jesus repeats, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This, the, 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 so the phrase, Hear, O Israel, calls God's covenant people to attention. And then there's this great foundational affirmation of faith, core belief, fundamental conviction. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. This great theological declaration calls us to consider the Lord our God, and that the Lord is our God, and that the Lord who is our God is one. Now, the meaning of the phrase, the Lord is one, is actually difficult to pin down with precision. I I doubt that the phrase, the Lord is one, has anything to do with God's metaphysical unity, as if his person is unified instead of divided. I don't, think, I don't think that's the point at all. The word one actually allows for different possible meanings. For example, the, the, the Lord is one of a kind. The Lord is unique. The Lord is first. The Lord is one. That is the only one. Or 
the Lord alone. In fact, if you, if you have an English Standard Version Bible and you have Deuteronomy 6, 4 in front of you where it says the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, the ESV has a footnote which indicates possible legitimate translations of the, of the Hebrew text. And one of the possible translations that it gives is this, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And if this is on the right track, I think it is, it explains how the phrase functions as the foundation to the most important commandment. Why should we love the Lord, our God, with everything we've got? Why should we do that? Because the Lord alone is our God. The Lord alone is our sovereign. The Lord alone is our shield and defender. The Lord alone is our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. The Lord alone is our God. Therefore, Deuteronomy 6.14, just ten verses later, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. In fact, I'm reminded of a similar teaching in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, when the Apostle Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, the belief that the Lord alone is our God, that the Lord alone is our God, is rooted in the even more foundational belief that the Lord alone is God. It's not just that the Lord alone is our God, but the Lord alone is God. In fact, if you have Mark chapter 12 open in front of you, the scribe calls attention to this when he summarizes and affirms what Jesus says in verse 32. Middle of verse 32. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. That, that, that's the scribe's summary of what Jesus is saying. And there's this, uh, in, the, in the book of Deuteronomy, I'm going to read this. You can turn there if you want, Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 34. You'll understand how the uniqueness of God, that He is the one and only God of heaven and earth, is, is foundational to this instruction. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 34 says, Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for Himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. Out of heaven He let you hear His voice, that He might discipline you. And on earth He let you see His great fire. 
and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it in your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. And he comes to his covenant people and he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Therefore, the Lord alone is our God. We owe him everything. We know no other Savior. We know no other refuge. We know no other life giver or promise keeper. The Lord is our one and only God. Therefore, Deuteronomy 6.4 leads to verse 5, which Jesus quotes in Mark 12.30. Therefore, since the Lord, the Lord alone is God and the Lord alone is our God, therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. What is, what is love? What does it mean to love? Many of you are familiar with one of the, the well-known New Testament Greek words for love is agape or variations of the word agape, which is the case here. And I'm not going to give you a, a dictionary definition. I'm going to give you a functional definition and then illustrate it from another passage. But here's my functional definition of, of agape love. Love is an attitude that values the beloved and desires the best for the beloved and expresses itself through self-giving action. You actually give yourself to the one that you love. Agape pops up all over the place in the New Testament, and it pops up at least three times in John chapter 3. So if you want to hold your place in Mark 12 and turn over to John 3, this will help you see the concept of love in action. John 3.16, one of the most well-known and beloved verses in the whole Bible, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God, God loved the, the, the perishing world, and he, he, he wanted to, to, to rescue perishing sinners out of it, and so his love did something, namely, he gave his son for our redemption. Go down three verses to John 3, 19. The, the word, the word uh, agape is not necessarily used to communicate that which is positive. We can love the wrong things, and you see that here in chapter 3, verse 19, where Jesus says, and this is the judgment the light has come into the world, and people loved, this is agape, people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They, they preferred, they, they loved, they preferred the darkness, and they wanted that darkness to be a cover over their misdeeds. 
And then John 3, 35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. When the Father looked out at the world, He saw an unlovely world and He gave His Son to it. But when the Father looks at His Son, He sees the One who is wonderfully and perfectly lovely. The radiance of the Father's own glory. And the the Father is pleased. It says in Mark chapter 1 that the Father spoke over Jesus at His baptism, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And the Father so delights in the Son that He gladly hands over His entire estate to His Son because His Son is worthy. Agape values, esteems, cherishes, prefers the beloved. Agape desires that the beloved be honored if the beloved is worthy of honor and desires that the beloved be rescued if the beloved has lost their way. And agape acts, takes action. You actually give yourself your very best to the one that you love. And so this this is the most important command, to love the Lord your God with your whole being. This is the highest calling upon your life. This is the weightiest matter for you and for your soul to reckon with. It's to love the Lord with, what does it say? With all your heart. Heart is the, the innermost part of you where you experience affections, and where you make choices. Your soul is really you. Your self, your life, your mind is that part of you that that thinks and discerns and appraises. And your strength is your energy, your capabilities, your potential for action. And so the, the greatest command is that in all of your desiring and willing, in all of your being and living, in all of your thinking and discerning, and in all of your exerting and doing, you are to demonstrate your supreme love and uncompromising loyalty to the Lord God Almighty. Now, how do you love someone who is perfect, who has no deficiencies and no needs? By delighting in His perfections, by basking in His great love for you, by preferring fellowship with Him over anyone or anything else, by desiring that He be honored, that He be known, that His name be hallowed, that His kingdom come, and that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and then by actually striving with all that you have to do His will. If you're here this morning and you find the Olympics exciting, the news interesting, money captivating, games compelling, hobbies addicting, sins enticing, and God boring, and you are utterly perplexed 
about how you could ever love him with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength when you find him boring and his word boring and his mission boring. I'm here to tell you that if that's, if that's the case, you have a huge heart problem. You have a disease at the core of your being. You are completely missing your point in life, and what you need is a miracle to change your heart. I'm going to ask you some diagnostic questions. Help, help to let this great commandment sink in. Do you seek to align your heart, your affections, and your will with the heart of God? Do you feel the reality that the Lord is your life, that his words are your life? Do you deliberately turn your mind to meditate on the mind of God as revealed in Scripture? Do you find your strength in the Lord? And as the Lord renews your strength, are you diligent to run the race that he has set before you? Are you glad to spend and be spent for the Lord's sake and the gospel's sake and the mission's sake? Do, do you demonstrate your love for the Lord in practical a actions? It is a utter impossibility. It is a complete impossibility to love someone with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, and it not get translated into your actions and decisions. It's impossible. Is your priority in every relationship, every responsibility, every situation, every mundane moment, every choice of entertainment, every use of your smartphone, tablet, or computer to demonstrate love for the Lord? Is there anything in your life right now that is undermining or hindering your love for the Lord? And if so, what are you going to do about it? When I was a much younger Christian, I found great quotes electrifying, and I would write them down in one of my Bibles. And here's one that I wrote down from J. Wilbur Chapman, an evangelist from a few generations ago. He said, the rule that governs my life is this. Anything that dims my vision of Christ or takes away my taste for Bible study or cramps my prayer life or makes Christian work difficult is wrong for me and I must, as a Christian, turn away from it. Finally, and transitioning to the next part of our passage, do you demonstrate love for the Lord by showing care and concern for other people? Remember, the scribe asked Jesus which commandment is the most important of all, and Jesus answered it. J Jesus has identified the single most important commandment, but Jesus is unwilling to stop there. He's unwilling to stop at the most important command. Jesus believes that the second commandment is so important that it must be mentioned immediately after the first commandment. Some people might be tempted to think that the ideal situation is to spend all your time with the Lord and minimize your interactions with people. Get me a Bible, get me a journal, get me a, get me a monastery, get me alone on a mountain, and let me just live there all the time, communing with the Father 24-7. No other disappointing, frustrating, imperfect, troublesome people 
to deal with. But that's not the Father's will. The Father's will for you is not to, is not to pull you out of relationships, but to remake you into someone who is able to represent Him in your relationships. The Father so loved this sinful world. The Father shows kindness to the righteous and the unrighteous. The Father sent His Son to die for His enemies. The Father has a special love for the people who belong to His Son. The Father wants you to so receive His love and so get to know Him and His character and His purposes that you are able to go forth into your network of relationships and represent Him well. Your love for the Lord, if genuine, must get expressed in love for other people. And so verse 31, Jesus says, the second is this, and now he's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Remember what this means. Value your neighbor. Desire your neighbor's well-being and act to promote your neighbor's well-being. Now, in our therapeutic and self-conscious age, some people have demoted the second commandment to third place. My guess is that most of you have probably heard this, some form of this, somewhere along the way. People will reason like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself presupposes that you love yourself. Therefore, the first commandment, is to love the Lord your God with your whole being. The second commandment is to love yourself. And the third commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. But this is, this is foolish tinkering with the word. There is no command to love yourself. And Jesus clearly identifies that the second most important commandment is about loving your neighbor, not about loving yourself. I'm not going to disagree with the Lord's assessment. The point of saying love your neighbor as yourself is because it is universal human experience except in cases of psychosis or demon possession. It is the universal experience of humankind to engage in self-care. There's nothing wrong with this. You are hungry, you eat. You are thirsty, you drink. You're cold, you turn up the heat or put on the sweater. You're hot, you turn on the air conditioner. You're bored, you pick up a good book. You're tired, you rest. And so on and so on and so on. Nothing selfish or self-absorbed about that. Just ordinary, appropriate self-care. You are instinctively responsive to your own needs. You are a precious image bearer of God. And thus, self-interest and self-care is entirely appropriate. Ultimately, we find our deepest interests and needs and desires met in relationship to the first commandment, which is going to the Lord, loving Him with all of our being, and receiving from Him all that He has for us. Now Jesus tells us, learn, learn to be instinctively, and selflessly responsive to the needs of the people around you in the same way that you are instinctively and dutifully responsive to your own needs. 
be attentive to other people's spiritual needs, other people's relational needs, other people's practical needs. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor is not a cog in a machine. People are not utility devices. People are not problems to be solved. They are image bearers, image bearers of God, however broken, and they are to be regarded as precious. They are made for Him and therefore cherish and care for the people that God puts around you. Now at the end of verse 30, Jesus says, there is no other commandment greater than these. These these two commandments are the apex, the summit, the high point of all that God expects of you. They are also the foundation and the heartbeat of every other commandment. Jesus tells us that if we love him, we will walk in obedience to his instructions. These two commandments must get into everything. Everything that we are, everything that we do, everything that we build. Without love, without love for the Lord and love for one another, religiosity is a sham. Ministry is worthless. Family life deteriorates. Good things die. Without love, your life is a mess. And this, ha- th- this, has, this has to get into the mundane, everyday, ordinary moments of our lives. After, after this worship service, we're going to have a special business meeting. The, the, the primary thing that the Lord is looking for in our Meeting is not, they cranked out a decision, yay. No, the main thing is, is it, is it flowing out of, is, is our meeting together and our conversation flowing out of our love for the Lord and our love for each other, and is it feeding back into the very same thing? If it's not, we're, we're wasting our time. VBS, if you're, if you're volunteering part of VBS this week, would you stand up? Remain standing. I just have a brief word of encouragement for you, okay? Um, Great execution is not the most important thing. You will rightly try to do your best and do a good job. It is not the most important thing. The most important thing is to stay close to Jesus. Keep your heart tender before the Lord and try to Love on those kids and love on one another. And if you do that, if you do that, then you are in the stream of God's blessing to his people. And that's where you want to be. You can sit down. The two greatest commandments must shape every aspect of our lives. In verses 32 and 33, scribe summarizes and assesses Jesus' answer. I'm not going to reread everything that he says there. Basically, he's just affirming that he agrees, he approves of the answer that Jesus gave. He, he summarizes it in his own words. He draws out an obvious application at the end of verse 33 that since the love commands are the most important commandments of all, then these are, end of verse 33, much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. In fact, what we learn there is, because there's a lot lot of commands in the Old Testament, some of them do involve 
presenting before the Lord offerings and sacrifices, but what we learn is that ultimately, foundationally, at the heart of things, the offering and sacrifice that you are to offer before the Lord is you. You, your love, your devotion, your, your loyalty, your obedience. You are to be a living sacrifice. If you are not a living sacrifice, then anything else that you do or present or offer is just empty religion. Verse 34. When Jesus saw that that the scribe answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I want you to think about this for, for a few minutes. On, on, on one level, the statement, you are not far from the kingdom of God, is an encouragement. It's communicating to the scribe that, hey, you, you're, you're seeing something really important here. You're understanding something rightly. You're on the right track. But... It's not only an encouragement, it's also a sober warning that raises a very important question. Because at the end of the day, I don't want to be not far from the kingdom. If you go through your entire life, and then you die, and then you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and all you ever got to was not far from the kingdom, then he's going to say, to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Knowing, knowing that the love commands are the most important commands doesn't mean you're in the kingdom. Knowing Scripture, knowing the promises of God, knowing the content of the gospel and being able to verbalize it. None of those things necessarily mean that you are actually in the kingdom of God. You might know, 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 know so many right answers and yet Jesus would have to say you're not far from the kingdom of God but you're not yet in. And I wonder, I wonder if there's one, two, three, Four people here this morning who are not far from the kingdom of God but are not yet in the kingdom of God. Those of us who follow Christ know how often we fall short in love, but there really is a love from the Holy Spirit that He pours out into the heart of believers and we, we begin to experience and grow in the, in the reality that we love the Lord and that we love one another and we have this special bond of fellowship in Christ. And perhaps you are here and you know a lot of right answers, but the heartbeat of love is not within you. You do not have a passion for the Lord. You do not have a desire to live sacrificially for the good of others. Listen, you need to become a person who loves, but actually, if you're not far from the kingdom of God, attempting to love, attempting to love God and attempting to love others will not, will not get you into the kingdom. The New Testament teaches in various passages that 
Love for one another is not the way into the kingdom. It's evidence that you have been brought into the kingdom. It's evidence that you have been brought from death to life. It's evidence that you have been born again by the Spirit of God. There is one God, and there is no other besides Him. And if you would enter into His kingdom, He must become your God. Here, O Israel. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your your God. He has to become your God. And before you can ever love Him, before you can ever love other people for His sake, you must learn of His great love for you. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Yes, our love for the Lord and for each other is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The true sacrifice that we offer the Lord is a living sacrifice. But what comes first? The sacrifice that He made for us. God gave His very best, His very own Son, and the Lord Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're, you're, you're feeling in your heart that, boy, I know a lot of Bible, but I think I'm outside of the kingdom. Maybe the Lord is, maybe the Lord is convicting your heart. Is, is, there, is there anyone in here who would, who would raise their hand and say, Please, please pray for me. I, I am not far from the kingdom of God, but I don't think I'm in the kingdom of God. Anyone? Maybe, maybe you feel that, but you're afraid to put your hand up. And, I, and if that's you, I don't, I don't know if, if anyone here in that situation, but if that is you, my hope is that the Lord bugs you and hounds you, and stays after you until you surrender to his gospel and come to know him in a personal way. Let's pray. Father, I pray, I pray that we would not veer off the path I pray that we would be continually renewed in these most important things. We want to know you, Lord. We love you. We want to fellowship with you. We want your words to be upon our heart. We want your spirit to transform us into the character of Christ. We want to be faithful representatives to the people around us. We want to bring love into our marriages and into our families and into our ministry teams, into our workplaces and into our neighborhoods. And we need to be transformed. We need to abide in Jesus and His words need to abide in us so that we would be useful and fruitful. And Father, this is our prayer. Enlarge our hearts that we would walk in the way of your commandments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.